The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. If you all have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and this morning we're looking at verses 9 through 13, and I'm speaking on the subject of what to do, what to do when the world gets bad, what to do when the world gets bad. And Jesus gave the words we see in Mark chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, to his disciples the week of his death, the holy week. He here gives in Mark chapter 13 a sermon that we often entitle the Olivet Discourse. Jesus here gives this sermon to his disciples before his departure from planet earth in order to prepare them for things that would happen in their lifetime, but also to prepare believers for things that will happen at the end of the age. It's important to know this about Mark chapter 13. Throughout this chapter, throughout the Olivet Discourse, we see both prophecy concerning things for the first century as well as things for the 21st century. You could say that there are prophecies in Mark 13 that have a near fulfillment, near for Jesus' disciples. It would happen in their lifetime. But you could also say there were prophecies that had a far fulfillment, things that would not happen in their lifetime, things that are still yet to happen even to this day. Jesus here has far-off prophecies, things related to the end of the world. You see this fact in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, when Jesus speaks of the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming, the return of Christ. And you know from Jesus' prophecies here that he has both near things, first century things, and far things. 21st century things in mind. And in telling all of this, Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples and he wanted to prepare us. He wanted to get us ready with a proper response for a world in which things are bad. What to do when the world gets bad. Uh, Yesterday, my family and I, we were traveling back from Cochrane, Georgia, and we stopped at Buckner's, Buckner's Family Restaurant. Anybody ever been there before? It's on the highway between Jackson and Barnesville, all right? The rest of y'all, I'm preaching this morning. You need to listen. You need to respond, and you need to right now make plans to go eat at Buckner sometime. You need to respond this morning, Amen. Listen to what the preacher's saying. Very good restaurant. When I left uh, one of the churches I pastored, there was a man in the church. He said, you may not have taught us anything through your preaching, but we sure enough learned about some good eating places while you were our pastor, all the restaurants you talked about in your sermon. So, hey, I'm giving you one this morning. I'm trying to help you out. Go eat there sometime. Really good fried chicken. But I couldn't help but think about my grandfather when I was there at Buckner's because he had lived in Barnesville, Georgia for several years, and I had lived with him um, when I went to Gordon College in Barnesville, Georgia. 
My grandfather used to have a, a saying in which he would, really he meant it as humor, but when people would get negative and maybe share a bad story or talk about how horrible the world is, Papa would kind of chuckle and say, well, things are bad everywhere. And that was his way of just kind of dealing with all the negativity in the world. He used to tell me, man, if you don't have a sense of humor, you're going to have a really hard time in life. Now, I was thinking yesterday, if Papa was alive now, he would really could say like never before, things are bad everywhere. Really, indeed, as we look at society, there's a lot of horrible stuff going on in the world. There seems to be confusion and corruption like never before. It seems like we have lost our minds, like we have lost our spiritual wits. When you see politicians in the news this past week promoting and supporting some of the most debased things, you have to say, our world has indeed gotten really bad. We hear the words of Jesus this morning and realize we need to know, according to God's word, what to do when the world gets bad. Jesus gives us, I believe here, three actions you can take, I can take, we can take when the world gets bad. Number one, Jesus encourages us to be ready, to be ready. So so what do you do when the world gets bad? What do you do when you watch the news and see depravity playing out before you? What do you do when you consider all of the division and the angst in our world? Number one, I believe this. According to the words of Jesus and his instruction for us, we need to first of all be ready. Jesus says here in verse 9, look at the text, but you, it's emphatic in the original language. Jesus is perhaps pointing at his disciples. They're speaking of all of the birth pains that will exist, verse 8, throughout the church age. After referencing the trial and the tribulation that will mark these days in which we live, Jesus points to the disciples and says, but you. I believe the fingers pointed at the church as well this morning. We need to hear the words of Jesus. He says, but you be on your guard. Be on guard. One Greek scholar has said that the words of Jesus are very emphatic in the original language. Jesus is placing great weight on the need for his followers to continually, regularly be on spiritual guard. Be on guard. Original language he calls for a continual, habitual, ongoing vigilance in life. That means good times, bad times. That means no matter who is president, that means no matter war or absence of war, the people of God need to always be on the spiritual lookout. Now Jesus' disciples in the first century, if we think of the near fulfillment, they needed to be on guard. They needed to be open to the possibility of persecution. You see, they had made this mistake that they were looking for Jesus to establish a political kingdom at his first coming. They were ready for him to vanquish the Romans and make them co-rulers in a new kingdom in Judea. They weren't thinking about a cross. They weren't thinking about suffering. They weren't thinking about God's mission. 
Instead, they were thinking about places of power and prominence and prestige. And Jesus had to point the finger at them and remind them that this world's a broken place. And according to his timetables of redemption, it wasn't time for him to sit upon the throne yet. He says, instead, boys, you need to be on guard. You need to get your spiritual wits about you. You need to be spiritually discerning. You need to know the plans of the Father as outlined in the Holy Scriptures. Disciples had a Pollyanna perspective in which they assumed they would face no trouble on behalf of Christ. We know in time all of them, save one, would suffer a martyr's death. Some of those are recorded in the book of Acts. Church historian Eusebius, you can get a copy of his writings. He speaks of the death of some of the disciples. There was only one lone survivor, that was John, and we know he was exiled to the island of Patmos and suffered horrible things because of his stand for Christ. The disciples, indeed, they needed to be on guard. They were going to face some tough things because of their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And those descendants who would come after them in the first century would fare a little better. For the name of Jesus, many of them would be killed. The early church would be mocked and scorned and treated cruelly by Roman emperors. The Roman historian Tacticus writes about many of the things the early church faced. I gave you a quote, I believe, in your, your listening outline. He writes saying mockery of every sort, and this is from a non-Christian source, mockery of every sort was added to the deaths of Christians. Many of them were covered with the skins of animals or beasts, and then ferocious animals were released to eat the Christians. They were torn by dogs and perished. Some were nailed to the cross. Others were doomed to flames to be burned alive. Christians were used by the Roman Emperor Nero as candlesticks in his garden to light up his garden at night. Some say that Nero made such sport of killing Christians that it was almost like a sick and cruel circus. And Tacticus tells us that even criminals who deserved extreme punishment were sympathetic towards the Christians and the way they suffered. Even The most vile criminals would say Nero's gone too far. This is horrible the way Christians are being treated. So so get this. Jesus' words, be on guard, had great meaning for the disciples. They had great meaning for the early church. Our forefathers, our ancestors in the faith needed vigilance in that first century. As they faced the siege of Titus, as they faced the wrath of Nero, they needed spiritual discernment and strength. They needed to be aware that persecution was a possibility. And they needed to stand strong. So we see this near fulfillment of the text. But as it is with biblical prophecy, know this, there's often a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment as well. We believe by studying Jesus' words here that Jesus foretells of a time, not just in the first century, but at the end of time, in which there will be hostile, harsh hatred towards the people of God. Look at what Jesus says in verse number 9. He says, they will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. 
You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. Jesus here prophesies in accordance with Daniel chapter 7, verses 19 through 22. At the end of time, hundreds of years ago, the prophet Daniel, sitting in Babylon in the midst of a corrupt kingdom, foretold that one day the Ancient of Days would return. But prior to the Ancient of Days' return, the Son of Man would, those who followed the Son of Man would face Great persecution. Daniel foretold of a day in which there would be a one world government that would hotly persecute people of faith. In Revelation 6, 9 through 10, Revelation 13, 5 through 8, and 14 through 17, tell of how at the end of time there will be governmental opposition against the faith. Do we not see the first forays of this in modern society? As governments are considered making legal and as they continue to make legal things that go against our faith and go against God's law. See, this has happened in our society where things that are abominations in the sight of God have been made legal, but now we're seeing it a step further that those who disagree are being scorned as hate mongers and being scorned as being intolerant. Do we not see in our society a a move, a a shift to where it's going to be real easy for there to be... what? The Bible foretells of a government that stands in opposition to people of the faith. So though Jesus' words had an immediate application for his disciples, our Lord's words stand as a warning for all generations. We need to be on guard as Christians. We need to be prepared to face persecution. We need to be prepared for tribulation. Too many modern believers are out of touch with the Word of God and they're not aware of biblical prophecy. And many times they shrug it off. Well, you can't understand that. It's not really important. Everybody's got their own perspective. Listen, Jesus gives some very plain words here. Be on guard. Understand what's coming. Understand where the world is heading towards. Quit ye like men. Be strong. Too many Christians, professing Christians, glibly glide through life, unconcerned with what Jesus tells us here, not committed to Lord's Day worship, not engaged in personal worship and private prayer. Too many Christians have priorities that are out of control, and all the while human history marches on to the Lord's intended completion. And listen, we need to have King Jesus sitting on the throne of our hearts. We need to be Matthew 6, 33, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to be ready and be on guard. Too many are completely unaware of the coming apostasy of which Scripture speaks, of the persecution that will come upon the church A concern for truth and God's word and sound Christian doctrine is being replaced in modern churches by a shallow religion that is centered on little more than cute devotional thoughts about God and some self-help imperatives. I believe in the end, we're going to see as the 
time of tribulation comes upon us that such shallow, empty, me-centered religion is worthless. And we need to cling to the words of Jesus and be on guard, to be ready, to be people of prayer, people of holiness, people whose hearts and minds are filled with the truth of God. And we need to be ready to stand with love as lights for Jesus in this dark world where there's so much pain and so many problems. We need to be people of hope and people ready to give help. Be on guard. Number two this morning, I want you to see that Jesus' words remind us that we need to be bold. How do we get ready for the end? We need to secondly be bold in telling others about Jesus. Now at the end of verse 9, Jesus said, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of unregenerate society running wild, you'll be witnesses for me. And then he says in verse 10, it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. It's necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. The Greek word translated is necessary is a small three-letter word in the Greek language. And theologians tell us it is something that points out something of divine necessity and hear me church this morning the Lord Jesus Christ before he ascended back into heaven gave us a divine necessity a divine obligation he told us go into all the world and preach the gospel he said you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth and notice Jesus heart for the church in the midst of difficult times. It's not for us to go hide away somewhere. It's not ours to become unhelpfully negative. We're not to fight fire with fire and act like the world in all of its debates. We are instead to go into the world and live the Christian life, life, life and shine the light of Jesus and proclaim Jesus' good news. This is what Jesus wants us to do. This is how we make a difference in a messed up society like ours. It's not by cursing the darkness. It's not by engaging in the same tactics that the world uses. It is instead by living the Christ life and intentionally, regularly sharing the gospel with people. This is Jesus' ordained means of transformation. This is Jesus' method for his people countering a corrupt and crooked and depraved generation. Gospel proclamation. Now, sure, there's a place for us engaging in civic life. Sure, we should vote. Sure, we should lobby for just laws. Sure, we should let our voice be heard in those ways and loving ways. But let, let's remember what Jesus says here. The church's primary means, mission, and method of countering sin in this world is gospel proclamation, witnessing. Now, the word here, preach, is a neat one in the original language. It's not a word that refers to what the preacher does on Sunday morning stands up and preaches. remember hearing the story. My grandfather said one time my sister was talking about him preaching. He was a preacher, and 
he said something about how he preached on Sunday morning, and she said, you don't preach. He said, you just get up on Sunday and yell at people and tell them how bad they are. For her, that's what preaching was. All right? The word preach here isn't about a preacher getting up on Sunday morning. It's a simple word from the ancient world that was used of one making a public announcement. Never forget when you see that word preached in the New Testament, it is a term used of a town crier or herald in the first century. One who makes an announcement. And hear what Jesus wants us to do in 21st century America. Sure, vote. Sure, be involved in your community. Sure, try to bring change in ways that you can in public and civic ways. But remember mission number one. We're here to make an announcement about Jesus. To make people aware that there is a one true God who loves us all. Who made every man, woman, boy, and girl for a forever relationship with himself. It is our mission to let them know that although we are imperfect and broken, though we all have sin, God sent his son Jesus Christ to live on our behalf and to die on our behalf. And Jesus has been raised and he is alive and he is God. And if a man, woman, boy, or girl will call out to God, believing in Jesus, that man, woman, boy, or girl will be saved from sin and given life in Christ. And there is a hereafter Human history is indeed coming to end. The world, as many will tell us, is indeed expiring. The world one day, the Lord one day is going to make all things new. And those who are his will be with him forever. So we need to be bold in telling others about Jesus. Unfortunately, many, when it comes to the state of our society, give in to unnecessary hand-wringing and negativity Jesus encourages us instead to share the gospel, to make an announcement. Look at what he says in verse number 11. He says, so when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, this verse has been misapplied for many of years. Some take this verse and they apply it to preaching. I remember the first time I ever preached, I preached at the state prison in Forsyth, Georgia. Looks like Forsyth, but it's Forsyth down there. Don't go down there and say Forsyth. It's Forsyth. So I was in Forsyth and I was preaching. And I remember there was a man, man named Andy in my, my church. And I told him, I said, boy, I'm nervous about preparing my sermon. I've been working on it to preach at the state penitentiary and he said hey don't worry about it you don't need to study scripture says that the holy spirit will give you what to say when you stand up i stood up and i didn't have much to say i know this according to first timothy chapter second timothy chapter three latter half of chapter three and first part of chapter four paul encouraged timothy to study and to be prepared and to preach the word So preachers aren't to get up and just shoot off the cuff. Now, there's a time for doing that in in certain ways. I don't prepare every little word I'm going to say here. I believe I have liberty in the Holy Spirit and unction from him. But but I want to make this point. Jesus here is not talking about preachers preaching in front of a church. He's not talking, as it was applied to the church I used to minister in, to the Sunday night testifying service. 
You know, I've heard this verse used in that context. Get up in front of the people of God, share what you got to say, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you a word of wisdom for everybody. It's not what Jesus is talking about. I heard about the guy who testified in front of the church and rant, ranted and raved and raised his voice, said a lot of things he shouldn't have said, revealed a lot of things he should not have revealed. And afterwards, he told the guy sitting next to him, well, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit just got all over me. I had to share all that. His buddy said, you ain't going to blame all that mess on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so this verse has been applied in the church and churchianity to those types of things for a long time. Notice the meaning here. Jesus is talking about believers, disciples out in the world giving a response to people who are hostile to the faith. Jesus here is referencing that if you will go out into your workplace, amongst your family, in your neighborhood, and seek to share your testimony and share the gospel and be a minister, guess what? The Holy Spirit that is within you will help you in that task. And the Holy Spirit of God, as you're faithful to witness in ways unbeknownst to you, can use your words and the truth of Scripture to change minds, to change hearts, and to bring in a harvest for King Jesus. That's why Daryl Robinson, in his book, People Sharing Jesus, said a successful witness is a humble Christian who shares the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and simply leaves the results to God. Oh, in this world in which we live, we need Christians with that commitment. To just go out, love people, live the Christian life, to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within them, and to speak the words of the gospel, to share their testimony, to say good words for Jesus, and allow the Holy Spirit to draw people to Christ oh may that those type of people increase here at Tabernacle Baptist and as the world 2 Timothy 3.13 grows progressively worse in accordance with scripture may they be a faithful remnant here in Bartow County and in Cartersville Georgia though our entire nation may back away from the truth though churches may continue to step away from simple gospel ministry may we remain faithful and oh, that the Lord would use us to be bold in telling others about Jesus. Let me give you one last truth and we'll close. I want you to see that Jesus encourages us, third, to stand secure in who we are in Jesus. So what do you need to do as the world gets bad? You watch the news, your blood pressure goes up. What do you do? hear of atrocities and you hear of abuse and horrific things and perversion in our society, what do you do? Sometimes I like to have fantasies in my mind of what I'd like to do. See, a bad thing for me is I've seen all the Iron Man movies. So like I daydream, like I, I have an Iron Man suit and I can fly around the world and straighten everything out. And then I'm like, hey, that's crazy. I can't be thinking like that. All right, okay, back to earth, back to reality. <laughs> So don't, now don't get messed up now. I'm, I might hurt some of y'all. You're going to be daydreaming about having an Iron Man suit later, all right? Don't do that. What can we do? Take a spiritual time out when you're getting tore up from the floor up. Remember, Jesus said, be ready. Remember, Jesus said, be bold in sharing the gospel. Number three, know that Jesus gives this truth for your soul. You need to stand secure in who you are in Jesus.
Stand secure in who you are in Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. He says, brother will betray, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Now, I can't imagine my brother betraying me. Now, we're different. We're not the same. We don't agree on everything. But I can't imagine us betraying each other. I can't imagine my father betraying one of his children. It just doesn't happen. It won't happen. Children will rise up against parents. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there, there's one use of the word love, Greek word love, that's never used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's the Greek word storge, from which we get our word for the stork, the bird, you know, that delivers the babies. Y'all know about this, right? Okay. So that stork, all right. So the word storge was the word for family type of love. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in the last day there will be a lack of family love. And, and here Jesus says, well, this is going to happen at the end of time. Brother will betray brother to death. Father's child children rise up against parents and have them put, in death, put to death. Now, there was a first century fulfillment. Go to Wikipedia and look up Siege of Jerusalem or go get a copy of the works of Josephus, the church historian. You can even read them online. Just Google it. And you can read his book on the wars of the Jews and you can read others and you can learn about when Titus came into Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and surrounded the city that there were actually family members who sold each other out just to try to save their own hide. So Jesus told of that in advance, near fulfillment. There's also a far fulfillment in view here as well, as with the entire chapter. Jesus is reminding us at the end of time, as I mentioned earlier, Storge, 2 Timothy chapter 3, there will be a lack of family love because of the claims of Christ, because of the gospel, because of Jesus' allegiances, families will actually be divided. Go read Revelation chapter 13 at the end of time. Antichrist will force folks to draw a line in the sand and choose whether or not they're going to follow his government or follow the Lord. And as a result, we believe at the end of time that there will actually be divisions amongst families over these issues. So we need to be prepared. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Now there's perhaps a bit of hyperbole, exaggeration in there. Jesus doesn't mean every little literal person on planet earth will hate you. He means you're going to be really, really hated. Be prepared. But look how he, he concludes here. I mean, it sounds like negative stuff. I mean, it's almost like, let's just close our Bibles. This is so gloom and doom. Let's go read some Norman Vincent Pill and cheer, cheer ourselves up. Well, look at how Jesus concludes. It's not all just gloom and doom. It's reality. And then he concludes with a promise. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, he speaks of a doctrine here we could call the endurance of the saints based on his words. Jesus shows, as in Paul tells us in Philippians, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus reminds us, as he does in John's gospel, that no one can ever snatch us out of the hands of the Father. Those who have truly been saved, who truly have the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus says, will endure to the end. Now, it's important to note here, Jesus doesn't say your endurance will earn your salvation. He's teaching that your endurance will be evidence of your salvation. Notice that those who endure will be saved. Saved. Interestingly, it's a Greek word that's used throughout Mark's gospel to speak of people who were physically healed. Jesus uses that same word here to depict what will happen at the end of time for all who have been born again. You see, there is a day of reckoning coming. All of human history is heading towards a final conclusion. The timeline of planet Earth will end, Revelation 21.1, with Earth being destroyed and its atmosphere being done away with, and the Lord creating a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven and new earth will be similar to the original heaven and earth. It will be a perfect place with no Satan, no sin, no disease, no death, no pain, no problems, no corruption, no confusion. Paradise, perfection, peace, and the presence of God forever and ever. But in order for the Lord to create such a perfect place, in order for us to enjoy his presence and the bounty of his goodness forever in that place, he must finally and forever eradicate sin. The Bible teaches there is a great judgment coming called the great white throne judgment. And the Lord will examine every man, woman, boy, and girl He will look at their works to see of what sort they are. He will examine the exterior of their lives to see if they give any proof, if they show any fruit that they truly knew Christ. Based on their works, he will judge all of humanity. And those who are found without good fruit that gives evidence of regeneration, those who have lifestyles that prove they were never saved, will be removed from the presence of God forever and ever to a place the Bible calls hell. The Lord may seem unjust in doing that, but I would argue this morning he is completely just in doing that because he is a righteous God and because he deserves to have his creative order restored to its original intent. Perfection, peace, paradise, humankind without sin and his presence forever and ever. And so as a church, as believers this morning, we have this promise that this is where we're heading to. We're heading to the new heaven, the new earth. So when I watch the news and I see politicians and rulers say such evil things and support such injustice, and such ungodly things. Yes, I'm grieved. I take a moment to say thank you, Jesus. All of human history is heading towards a kingdom in which you will rule and reign in righteousness forever and ever. I have to pause and even pray many times the words of John the Revelator. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Monday night, my family watched the Braves game. Like many of you, we've been keeping up with all of that. And we're all nervous about tonight, right? 
Monday night we watched the game, and as a Braves fan, I was nervous. You know, I grew up with a dad and grandfather who could be a, a little bit down on their sports teams. I find myself now doing the same thing. We ain't going to win. Well, now I understand why they're kind of negative. They've seen them lose for so long. Now I'm becoming the same way. I brought a picture this morning with me. This is a picture of the pitcher for the Dodgers Monday night. It's tied one-to-one. Nick, Nick Marcakis, one of my favorite players, comes up the bat, and he had an opportunity to give us the lead, but he hit into a ground ball, and the inning ended, and the broadcast showed the pitcher in the dugout for the other team cheering as our guy got out. And I thought, man, I don't like that guy. <laughs> Just kidding. But I did have some negative thoughts. They shouldn't be cheering like that. How tacky, how unprofessional. Now I try to stop and think. Our guys cheer a lot too, don't they, when they do something good? So. <laughs> but I saw this. You know what our boys like to do? They like to go back and watch the replays of the games. We have the MLB app where you can go back and replay the games. And they were kind of replaying some of the stuff, I believe, on Tuesday or one day this week. And I remember seeing this exact inning play out. Now, when I saw this happen on Monday night, it kind of got on my nerves because it was still tied one-to-one. But I saw the day later, I thought, well, go ahead and laugh, big boy. Go ahead and cheer. I know how it all turns out. We're going to win this game. As Christians this morning, I'm reminded that we have a similar, we can have a similar type of perspective when it comes to all that's going on in our world. Instead of being mad at some of the evil you see in your world, and don't hear me wrong, you should have a holy, holy frustration and even a righteous anger towards some of the things we see in our society. But I've learned in a way to turn some of that into pity. To have pity and compassion on a broken, deceived, sinful world. I've learned also in the midst of that to try my best to remember how it's all going to pan out in the end and to remember that one day when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, the stuff that we've seen in this world, the stuff we're experiencing now will seem like a light and momentary affliction. So let's be strong. Let's be ready. Let's be bold in telling others about Jesus and let's stand Strong and secure in Christ, knowing in the end Christ will rule and reign forever. And those who have confessed their sins and repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved will be there with him forever. And even so, come Lord Jesus. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.